0: You wanna hear my favorite quote? Yes. This is my favorite quote. (laughs) Life is not a cautious journey to the grave with the intention of arriving in a a pretty body, but rather to skid in broadside, thoroughly used up, completely worn out, proclaiming, wow, what a ride. That would be me. (laughs) <laughs> my body is not gonna be pretty or well preserved <laughs> when i get wherever i'm going but boy oh boy i had a life
1: Welcome to Bridge the City, a podcast recorded in the complex and beautiful city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Our mission is to bridge together people, resources, and ideas that inspire Milwaukee to action. My name is Ashley Benson, and for the second episode in a row, I am co-hosting with the Bridge the City Boys, and what an honor it is.
2: Yes, it is. Happy to have you again here, Ashley. My name is Sam Woods, and both Ashley and I had a conversation of a lifetime with a Milwaukee native, community activist, and businesswoman, Margaret Henningsen.
1: Conversation of a lifetime is right. We were able to dive into all of her accomplishments from establishing UWM's Black Student Union in the 1960s to starting the first woman run community bank in Wisconsin.
2: It's truly an incredible conversation, and with Black History Month this year being overshadowed at the national level and at the local level, we want to recenter the conversation to the many accomplishments and lasting influence of one of Milwaukee's most impactful residents.
1: So, enjoy the episode.
2: Margaret Henson, welcome to the Bridge City podcast. Thank you. Can you just start us off with a quick introduction?
0: I'm a native of Milwaukee. I've lived here all my life, almost 72 years. I have nine brothers and sisters. I'm the oldest of the ten, who I love dearly. I have about 50-some nieces and nephews and great nieces and nephews who are s- spread out all over the place. I've been a longtime community activist here in Milwaukee. Um... I started the annual Juneteenth Day celebration here that had never been celebrated in a northern city. Mm -hmm. That was back in the days when I was more energetic and didn't have (laughs) quite so much to do. Um, I've been involved with a number of both for-profit and non-profit organizations and agencies here as both a staff person and on the board. I was the founder of Legacy Bank here in Milwaukee that would focus on community lending.
2: I'm glad you mentioned founding or starting the Milwaukee Juneteenth Day celebration. Can you walk me through you know, how, when, all how all that came about, How <laughs> when it
0: came about, yes. and how it's evolved? Okay, so In my teenage years, every year we jumped in the family car, my mom and dad and my brothers and sisters, and traveled somewhere south. And on one of those visits, during a conversation with my great grandmother about why black people in the South weren't doing more to recognize that they were free from slavery, et cetera, et cetera, she started telling me about this holiday black people celebrated called Juneteenth. Mm -hmm. I was 14 at the time. Mm Fast forward eight years later, and we're having a staff meeting at Northcott Neighborhood House, which is where I used to work, and talking about how to bring people back to Third Street. And it was right after the civil disturbance here, and people were afraid to come back to our community. And this conversation I had with my great-grandmother sort of popped up in my head. And I said, well, why don't we have a Juneteenth Day celebration? And you Mm -hmm. could hear crickets. (laughs) Nobody in the room knew what I was talking about. So I explained to people that uh, June 19th was the last day that the cavalry got to Galveston, Texas, to tell slaves they were free. They had ridden all across the South and the West to let slaves know that the emancipation proclamation had been signed and that they were free so in many southern states texas areas around there june 19th then became juneteenth and they have huge celebrations. so i started talking to people about having a juneteenth day celebration here in milwaukee so it turned into just this fabulous event and over the years it has just grown to where it is now. So it's continued to be on the same street but it went from two blocks to almost a mile. And then over the years, we added things. One year, we brought the original Emancipation Proclamation here. Oh, that was how did you amazing. That? How did you oh, get that, that took center? a lot of, <laughs> a lot of work. Depression. We had to exactly. you know, call in all of our favors. They flew it here on an airplane in its own seat Whoa. with a guard. And we had to protect it when it got here. And so we had our first Juneteenth Day Freedom Ball around bringing the Emancipation Proclamation here. What I loved was the look on people's face as they stood there and looked at this document. Mm -hmm. It signifies so many things. It signifies how far we had come, but how much further we had to go. Just visualize this, over a hundred thousand people on this street, on King Drive, probably a hundred booths selling Mm -hmm. food, Mm -hmm. jewelry, clothing educational items you name it you can find it at juneteenth day but the best part about it is just the camaraderie the laughing the singing the dancing the outfits oh my (laughs) goodness the outfits
1: you know yeah you've definitely convinced me not only do i want the snow to be gone but now i'm really excited (laughs) for the (laughs) this
2: legacy bank take me through how it was how it was started the idea behind it um, and how was its, like, its goals and its operations different from, say, I don't know, like Bank of America or, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, you know, like, I know um, what you mean. Like. <laughs>
0: okay, so, so the first, I would say that legacy was similar to the big banks mm-hmm. in that we were in the business of making money so we could lend money yeah. and bringing money, capital, resources to certain areas of our community that had been primarily ignored by larger banks. Mm -hmm. There were larger banks that were good partners in our community, but there were a lot of them that weren't. And that's what drove me to this decision is it actually was because of a conversation I had with someone who had just been turned down by a bank and somebody had told her to come talk to me. She was a principal of a high school here, Mm -hmm. impeccable credit, but she had like two little collections on her credit report and she had been turned down and she was like, what? And she had gone to the same lender her white peer had gone to who had just gotten out of a bankruptcy and got approved for a mortgage and she was trying to figure out what was going on her friend said, you should go talk to Margaret. So honestly, on my birthday, I was sitting at my desk and I said, I'm going to start my own bank. And then I started looking around for somebody who might be interested in doing this with me. And the first person I talked to was a woman named Cecilia Gore, who to this day will tell people, I thought Margaret was crazy. (laughs) And the reason I started with her is because I trusted her. After a couple of meetings with the state where they tried to discourage us, the Department of Financial Institutions, who at that time had no women as banking regulators, we changed that. We also had to raise five million dollars, so they required that we raise the maximum amount of capital that a de novo bank starting at Wisconsin had to raise. And I know they thought they'd never see us again. And we raised seven and a half million dollars. Three black women in their fifties. Dolores Sims, Shirley Lanier and me. And it was a struggle and people would start running when they saw us coming because <laughs> you know, they knew we were trying to get this money the minimum investment was twenty five thousand dollars and we got a lot of people from our community who had never been asked to invest to become investors in legacy bank it was pretty exciting the difference between legacy and some of the bigger banks is because we were considered a community bank Mm -hmm. we were able to apply for a designation called a cdfi a community development financial institution That opened up a lot of doors for us to be able to apply for grants and other types of programs that were out there. And one of them was New Markets Tax Credits, which was this new program the Treasury developed that said investors could buy the tax credits, they could take a tax break over a certain number of years, and the tax credits translated into dollars. We partnered with a group called Waveland Ventures and WIDA. So the Treasury Department had never seen a partnership with a community bank a state organization, and a private entity, and they loved it. Mm -hmm. So the three of us formed this group to receive the tax credits and then disperse the tax credits. Tax credits translated into dollars, and that helped a lot of these groups and and businesses and organizations around the state who never would have been able to do this Mm -hmm. to take the money from the tax credits and make that development happen. And we didn't know we were the first women in the history of the state to charter a commercial bank. We were only the second group of women in the United States to charter a commercial bank. There were some women in New York who had done it, but unfortunately, they did not survive. We spent a lot of time making sure that our customers were prepared to be successful. Yes, Dolores and I had rep- you know, a reputation to being really tough when we were talking to people, but because we both had been in lending for so long, we wanted to make sure that our customers were successful, and most of them were until the economic downturn happened. So we had, you know, we did Ponderosa on King Drive. We did um, Palermos. We did hotels. We did restaurants. We did clubs. We did churches. You name it, and Legacy Bank had their finger in it somehow or other, either with our tax credits or with our CDFI status or just with our own money that we raised to be able to do Uh, Lending, we took uh, some of the fees from our New new Markets tax credits, and we started a foundation, which is still in existence. The Legacy Foundation is still here. And so, and we do grants every year from the foundation to budding entrepreneurs, which, you know, other people are not doing. It changed the way Milwaukee looked and felt while we were here. And I think there are some lasting results from from what the bank did. Yeah. I would love to talk about your time with the Women's
1: Fund. I really want to talk about like the main goals of the Women's Fund and your time there, the leadership that you had, and what it
0: continues to do today. I was on the board of the Women's Fund for many years during the time I was organizing Legacy Bank and while I was at Legacy Bank. And so when my term was up, I decided not to renew it because I was so busy at the bank. Right after the... Uh, Right after the feds took over Legacy Bank, some members of the board of directors of the Women's Fund came to me and said that the woman that I would hired when I was on the board was leaving and would I be interested in being the executive director? And I said no. (laughs) So I don't know how the next five years happened because I said no. (laughs) But I ended up becoming the executive director of the Women's Fund of Greater Milwaukee. And the thing I love most about the Women's Fund is that they specifically gave grants to women and girls led nonprofits that really worked on social change activities, projects, programs, goals for women and girls. That's what I loved about it the most. We were and still are a small organization and our grants are somewhere in the range of ten to fifteen thousand dollars, although we've done more. But a small organization that's looking to do something social change oriented, that's like a gazillion dollars when they're looking to do something special and they need that grant. And I was a big proponent of a lot of these nonprofits partnering on activities. So instead of all of them just being out here in silos and doing the same thing, Hey, you three agencies are doing the same thing. We'll give you a little bit more money and that'll give you the leverage you need to make something happen. A lot of partnerships got formed from that. Mm -hmm. So it was an effort that was really started by women who said, we need to show the power of women-led philanthropy, and they set up these funds. Mm -hmm. We have the Her Scholarship Program where we give scholarships to women who are 35 or older going back to college. Mm -hmm. There's nobody that does that. Mm -hmm. There was no resource for Mm -hmm. women who wanted to go back to college. We've had about 90 women go through that program and graduate. That's awesome. We partner with several colleges and universities here. We did a significant grants to organizations that were working on human trafficking. And we got three organizations to partner and work on the human trafficking effort together. We were the first organization to give a grant to the Renaissance Theater Works which is a theater program that was started by women that does theater for women, but it's everybody is included. I'm on that board. I love Renaissance Theater (laughs) Works. For example, right now they're doing a whole play, Photograph 51, about the woman who actually busted open the whole DNA uh, idea, but she never got credit for it because the men she worked with stole the idea. That's, That's going on now. We funded their... Program to help develop more women playwrights because in the theater industry, women playwrights are almost non-existent. Men mm-hmm. are writing our stories. Mm-hmm.
2: You started the first Black Student Union, mm-hmm. correct? From UWM. I'm interested in that story. You know, this is what 1967. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was 66. 66. Any is there any pushback from the university? Oh
0: yeah. I got expelled. I mean
2: again I don't I don't want to
0: assume anything. So the black student unions were popping up all over the country in response to all the oppression black students felt being on white college campuses. You also saw to a certain extent black student unions popping up on historically black colleges but there weren't as many as there were on these campuses where the majority of the students were white. So myself and five other students, and one of them was a longtime friend of mine, Frankie Frankie McIlvain. we decided we were gonna start a black student union at UWM. And one of the things we noticed was that all the white fraternities and sororities and sort of campus groups had space on campus or some of the big houses around UWM, because UWM was much smaller in the 60s, but they had space. So we asked the university to give us some space, and they wouldn't. So we started meeting in the union. Mm -hmm. So some of the white students were complaining that we were meeting in the union. And, you know, we all had these big Afros sitting up (laughs) on our heads and our dashikis and, you know, black power and kill whitey and all that kind of stuff. And these kids were sitting here listening to all this so they would complain. So we decided to have a peaceful demonstration around this issue of we wanted UWM to give us space and I want to say there were probably about 25 of us or so. We were just kind of milling around what I call the old union at UWM because this is before they built all these new structures. And It got a little confrontational, and there was this one guy who got up and used a racial slur. And sometimes, you know, when you hear people hurling that word at you, the N-word, it does something to you. Now, I didn't start it. Somebody else in the group. (laughs) The next thing we knew, chairs were flying, lunch trays, they were flying, cups, it just turned into... A free-for-all. This guy pushed me, and I pushed him back. And there was another guy in the Black Student Union, his name was Milton Coleman. And he got mad, you know, and pushed back. Um, and there was another guy, Benoit, I cannot remember his last name, but we eventually found out he was like a plant or something. <laughs> and we used to, you know, back in those days, I found out years ago the FBI had a whole like file on me. They had files on everybody. And we were suspicious that people were taping us. So sometimes we would jokingly part each other's hair and talking to our hair as though they had put like a, a mic or something. We, you do crazy things when you're in college. But anyway, so long I, okay.
2: so <laughs> no, long, no right. so, so
0: long story short Oh, I've seen mine. So security came in, of course. And everybody's pointing their finger at me and two other people. And I didn't mind taking credit for it, although I never was really sure what started it. I got hauled in, you know, to the administration. They told me they were going to expel me. Now, they tried to say that it was because I was missing a lot of class and my grades. But my advisor's name was Dr. Black. I loved him. And he said, you're, get, you're being expelled. What you did in the union was inexcusable. You know, you're not going to class, you're out here inciting people, blah, 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 blah. So I was scared to tell George, my father, because George didn't play. And I said, oh, man, he's going to put me in the coal bin or somewhere. I'm going to really get punished. So for two weeks on the days when I was supposed to be in school, I got up and got dressed and left the house like I was going to school. I went to the movies, I went to the library, I went down by the lake, I went and visited people. <laughs> Week three, I had my hand on the door, and my father said, Margaret, where are you going? I said, to school. He reached into his pocket. He said, Really? He said, This letter from UWM says that you were expelled. So the letter was addressed to me, so when he showed it to me, I said, well, this letter's addressed to me. He said, but it came to my house. So he said, what happened? And of course, I started crying, and I told him what happened. The next day, he came in my room, and he said, we have an appointment to see the dean at UWM. I was like, what? He said, because they're not going to, they're going to let you back in. I said, Daddy, I don't want to go. I tried to protest. So long story short, we go have this meeting. and. I was sitting there listening to my father talk to these people about how I was his oldest daughter, the role model for his other nine kids, and how I was the first one to go to college, and how he and my mother were college educated and college graduates, and they expected that to happen to all their children. But the thing that surprised me the most, because he was always scared about all of my civil rights activities. I was marching and demonstrating all over the country, you know, doing all kind of crazy stuff and getting over people's faces and, and all those things. So he was kind of nervous. He said, my daughter not only had the right to march in that union, but if she wanted to throw a chair on her side, I said, is this the father I know? I was just sitting there looking at him. But I also felt bad that I had put him in this position where he had to come and beg these white folks to let his daughter back in school. And I remember thinking to myself, if I ever get back in here, I am never going to put him in this position, not ever again. And I didn't. So a couple of days later, sure enough, somebody called and said I was going to be readmitted. Get back in school. We got our space. Mm -hmm. They gave us two rooms at this house across the street where they had some other groups. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, we sort of became a, a catalyst on campus. The fair housing marches in Milwaukee.
2: At least in Milwaukee, you had enough people kind of stay focused on one issue amid a ton a other of a lot of issues. Can, that can yes. Going on. How did you stay focused on one issue for 200 days straight until something happened? And what advice do you have to young activists today who? You know, whether it be lead in the water or some mm-hmm. other issue. What advice do you have to them to like stay focused on one issue until you get progress on yep. that one? And then move on to the next, rather than trying to solve
0: it all at once. So the housing marches our housing marches here again were like the black student unions where it was part of a national effort to change the landscape around where black people could live. Mm-hmm. It was worse here than it was anywhere else in the country. It didn't really start out to be 200 days. It ended up being that long because that's how long it took to get somebody's attention. So earlier when you and I were talking and I was saying one of the things I liked about social media is that it brings issues to the forefront faster. That things often get solved faster, or worked on faster, or talked about faster, because so many people are engaged. When the marches first started here, nobody knew we were marching. Mm-hmm. But when it, you know, got to be like day fifty mm-hmm. and people still marching across that bridge, it started attracting attention. Yeah. It also attracted attention because it got violent. I mm-hmm. had eggs thrown at me, a brick, rotten eggs, and I'm talking little kids were throwing these eggs. Five, six, seven, eight. One of the first stories I told for ex fabula when we were practicing and learning how to do this was about this little girl that ran out across the bridge with these two rotten eggs and threw them at me and said, nigger, get off my bridge. She was eight tops, you know, that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of stuff going on around that march. And there were people working to pass the legislation, and it was the march that brought attention to it. So my point is, what I say to people today for activism is, you know, you have to, like my mother used to say to me, you have to learn how to pick your battles. Mm -hmm. And you have to have some wins sometimes to make it worth it to keep you going. So maybe you pick one thing you know for sure, I'm going to be successful, but you pick another thing where you know you have to spend a lot of time. And what I would say today is that fighting for your rights, fighting against injustices. How you fight that stuff has not changed. You get out there and you make noise. You ever heard the phrase, the squeaky wheel gets the grease? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's me. (laughs) And the thousands of people like me who are saying this is wrong and we want it to change. And when I talk to student groups, I tell them the same thing. You want this campus to be different? identify what the problem is and then don't stop till you get a change. So so that's really what happened is it didn't start out being we're going to march for 200 days. It started out being we're going to march across this bridge and it just accelerated. It evolved into that amount of time because that's how long it took for recognition and understanding and change to happen.
1: Um, so you've mentioned a few things that you definitely have the right to be proud of and I'm like Very impressed already. Could you tell us more about maybe something that you're the most proud of or something you really want
0: to highlight? This is probably going to shock. It won't shock people that know me. But the thing I'm the most proud of is being a mother. Okay. I have a daughter, and I always wanted to be a mother. I think it has something to do with being the oldest of ten children and having mm-hmm. so many nieces and nephews. You've been practicing all your life. right, <laughs> and I, you know, but but even when I was growing up, there were certain things I wanted to do. When I was in high school, my thing was to be Judy Suburbia. I was going to have ten kids like my mother in a station wagon, <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to be the PTA <laughs> president <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, uh, that just didn't happen. And I actually got a late start. I was in my 30s when Maya was born, born, Maya Joy. And I was really happy when she got here. She is my pride and joy. And I love being a mother. And not just to her, but I like being Mommy Margaret or Auntie Margaret to a lot of people. Oh, that's awesome.
2: Uh, and one thing I just want to mention,
0: you know, I noticed your email was... Uh... Maya's, Maya's mom. Maya's <laughs> mom. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody, when I first started using that email, people were like, really? Yeah.
1: <laughs> that's awesome that you have such pride in being mm-hmm. Maya's mom and also all this other stuff you've done. I would love to hear more about... What it was like navigating the world though, of being like a mother and a strong leader in the community?
0: Well, if you ask my daughter, she would probably say riding around in the back seat of the car while my mother was zooming all over the universe, <laughs> but you know, I can say that uh it's a it's a challenge of. Uh, Being a single parent, because eventually I was a single parent, and balancing my inner drive to make Milwaukee a better place for my brothers and sisters, my nieces and nephews, and my daughter. And so you have to balance that with, don't forget this darling little girl over here that you're so happy to have. So how I learned how to balance it is she went everywhere with me. Just about everything I've ever done, she's been involved in it, and I'm really lucky to have her. She's she's such a good kid. You know, she's never been. For the most part. We've had our, you know, like those teenage years. Every I mother, told my daughter, mother, I said, how did you be? Suspicious. I <laughs> told yeah. my mother, I said, how did you do this nine times? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yes. But it is a very delicate balance. And what I would say to people who are listening, especially women, is you, you have to. My father used to say to me all the time, Margaret, if you're going to break the rules, If you're going to swim upstream, you have to be prepared to pay the consequences. And so whenever I would tell him about something I was thinking about doing, especially when I was getting ready to start the bank, he said, are you willing to pay the consequences? And if the answer was yes, I did it. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And, um, you know, sometimes I'd be so sad because I would have missed something that Maya was doing or maybe wasn't there for something that she needed. But overall, she turned out okay.
1: I really want to know how you've seen Milwaukee
0: transform. Do you see the look on my face?
1: I do. I do. And that's why I'm even more interested in (laughs) hearing your response. Okay. Right. I'll try to
0: do this in a short period of time because so much has happened here. So I've lived here all my life. So I've seen it all. When I was young, Milwaukee was um, very segregated. It's still very segregated. As a matter of fact... I feel like, you know, deja vu is occurring here because I just read in the paper a couple of weeks ago that we've gone back to being the most segregated city in the United States. Mm -hmm. There was not a real strong black leadership base here that evolved over the years. There were a lot of people here who worked very hard to try to make Milwaukee a better city. One thing I would say is better now is we have more conversations, not enough, but more conversations around race here in Milwaukee because people recognize that that's an issue. People who wanted to work migrated here because manufacturing, the breweries was booming. If you wanted a job, Milwaukee was the place to come, whether you were coming from the north, south, east, or west. We had a significant And beautiful middle class here, black middle class, that just seemed to have faded into the sunset. Some of the decisions that were made by our, you know, city government were not the best decisions. One of the worst ones was when Interstate 43 just plowed through the middle of the black community. We had um, two parent, a lot of two parent households. The majority of the people, including my parents, who lived in the neighborhood I lived in, were all homeowners. It was just amazing. And then manufacturing, the breweries, everything started to slide down, and there was no plan B as far as I'm concerned. And I feel like I've lived here long enough to be able to say that. And people like me say the same thing. There was no plan B. So I would have to say that when the economic opportunities started to fade, there wasn't anything put in place to try to make sure that we stayed whole as a city. And the people who were working on that, I felt like we were working in a vacuum. And to a certain extent, they still are doing that. But I think all the different things I've done in Milwaukee, I've seen a lot of perspectives. I was a real estate agent. I saw how women and people of color got turned down and discriminated against by banks, how real estate agents didn't want to show people of color their listings if they were, you know, outside this segregated area of Milwaukee. So while I feel like some of those things have gotten better because people have worked to make them get better, that we still have a whole lot of work to do. And yeah. here in milwaukee around making us the kind of beautiful cosmopolitan city we would like for people to see that we are
1: yeah so something you're talking about activism getting involved voter engagement which we all love here at Bridge city but something yes. we really also want to always leave our listeners is like action steps like what can you do if you listen to this episode and really like now I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to go out. I'm ready to get behind something. What would you say, though, or what action steps would you have for someone who maybe hasn't done that?
0: A lot of times when people say to me, well, what can I do? My first thing to them is, you ever talk to anybody in your family about their attitudes? Because that's really where all of this starts. The second thing, I'm going to go back to what I said earlier. Make sure you're prepared to pay the consequences because some of these things that need to be changed, you're going to lose family and friends. They're just not Mm -hmm. going to understand, you know, why are you doing this? And the third thing I would say is, I'm actually, you know, social media is the devil and the angel in disguise, (laughs) but there's a lot of different things going on that you can find out about that you want to get engaged in. it's just like some of these kids who organized around some of the candidates that run. You know, for the first time in our history, we've had a lot of candidates, 25 and younger, get elected to office. One of them's a mayor of some small city somewhere. But it was all around organizing and campaigning on these issues about the way the town was treating people of color. So. It doesn't all have to be race related. It could be any issue that you're passionate about and you want to see a change. But the first thing is you have to open that door and step outside to do it. You can do nothing or you can be exhausted when you get to the end, but you can look back and go, I helped to make that change. Awesome. You want to hear my favorite quote? Yes. It's yeah. my favorite quote. <laughs> Life is not a cautious journey to the grave. With the intention of arriving in a pretty body, but rather to skid in broadside, thoroughly used up, completely worn out, proclaiming, wow, what a ride. That would be me. <laughs> <laughs> My body is not going to be pretty or well preserved <laughs> when I get wherever I'm going, but boy, oh boy, I've had a life.
1: Wow, what an incredible conversation. You know when you're having a regular day and you realize how beautiful life can be? Sitting with Margaret and hearing her words as she smiled talking about the community and work she has been part of her whole life, I knew it was such an honor to be in that moment. And how great is it that people in Milwaukee are willing and able to talk to us and spread their truth. I really enjoyed learning about Margaret's impact in the community, not only through the Black Student Union and Juneteenth, which I'll definitely be attending this year, but also through community banking. As she discusses, Legacy Bank might not exist today, but the legacy in Milwaukee prevails. She recognized an opportunity to lead and support the community in a way that highlighted her skills, experiences, and relationships to Milwaukee. What a badass.
2: One thing that stuck out to me in our conversation with Margaret was the number 200. For 200 days, Margaret and other Milwaukeeans committed to fair housing policy marched across the 16th street bridge knowing the extreme and often violent animosity that awaited them on the other side. Today, it often seems like the whole world is falling apart and that there are an unlimited amount of topics to be righteously enraged about. This can make it difficult to stay focused and mobilized on one particular issue long enough to see real change. After all, if there's so much wrong out there, why just focus on one issue for 200 whole days? Yet Margaret is living proof of the power that affecting real change on just one issue can have. Even better, Margaret and a number of those that cross the 16th Street Bridge or engage in other forms of activism during the 1960s in Milwaukee are still alive today and living right here in Milwaukee. So here's an action step. Find someone who is alive and civically engaged that time and connect with them. Take them to coffee one Saturday morning and ask them how they managed to stay focused in a turbulent world, how they organized their neighbors around a common cause, or how they found their role in whatever movement or activity they were involved in. We are so blessed to have people like Margaret among us who have walked the talk. So let's connect with them while we still can and keep their efforts alive as we take on the challenges of today, one at a time.
1: All right, this brings us to the end of our episode with Margaret. As always, if you enjoyed this episode and the conversation, please rate and subscribe and follow us on all the social media platforms. Remember, this Tuesday, February 19th, There are primary school board elections for District 8, and general elections will be April 2nd.
2: That's right. So if you live in Walkers Point, Bayview, or the far southeast side of Milwaukee, you may very well have an election on Tuesday. So uh, figure out if you're in District 8 and go vote. Also, we have exciting news here on the podcast.
1: What's that, Sam?
2: Well, Bridge the City will be co-hosting Milwaukee's Political Open Mic on Thursday, March 21st at Mobcraft Brewery. At this open mic, we'll be doing a deep dive on justice with help from Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Rebecca Dallet and Reggie Moore, the director of Milwaukee's Office of Violence Prevention.
1: Sounds awesome. Put it in your calendar, rate us on iTunes and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, let us know how you have helped
0: Bridge Bridge the the City.
2: Bridge the City.